Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia. I'm Will Kingston. I came across a meme on social media the other day. It showed a bloke blowing out the candles on his 30th birthday cake and then immediately walking into the bookshop and filling a wheelbarrow with World War II history books. My own experience was almost identical with a Kindle instead of a wheelbarrow. World War II continues to fascinate us in 2023. And as we are seeing in the Middle East right now, its consequences are still keenly felt, its wounds are still raw, and its lessons, well, they may or may not have been learned. To chat about World War II and its enduring importance, I'm joined by one of, if not the preeminent historian on the conflict alive today, James Holland. James's most recent book, The Savage Storm, has just been released. It tells the story of the hard, bloody fighting of the Italian campaign of 1943. James Holland, welcome to Australiana. Ah, well, thank you very much for having me on, Will. Thank you. My pleasure. We recently had Dominic Sandbrook on the podcast. He answered my 10 favourite history questions, and I've pulled together a a similar list of 10 questions to you, but more specifically focused around World War II. Oh, great. Bring it on. Question one. Yep. Your brother was also on Australiana recently. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a de facto rating show well, you know, between the, the whole brothers. The, the rest is history is 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 very big in Australia. So big that they're actually go, they're just about to head down your way to. Uh, well, I know you're in the US, but but they're about to head down in November, I think. Yeah, they they are. Well, they're don't doing worry. an Anzac tour because they're going to New Zealand as well. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately so. Um, they, they, it is very big in Australia. We have ways of working, making you talk. Your wonderful World War II podcast with Al Murray <laughs> is also big here, so don't worry. Oh, nice. Um, the, 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 question, the question that I ha- have to ask, though, is he is an ancient historian. He has right. over a 1,000 years of history to play with. You, as a, world, as a modern historian focusing in specifically on World War II, have a much more narrow window to peer through. What drew you to that more narrow window and... How do the skills of the modern historian and the ancient historian differ? Well, I, I I was really into it when I was a when I was a nipper, and then you know, like a lot of teenagers, I got kind of interested in other things, and I didn't really get back into the Second World War at all until end of my twenties. Because although I did history all the way through um, school and university, I like the most modern I think I got was was Reconstruction after the U.S. Civil War. So. <laughs> I didn't do any 20th century history at all. Now it's impossible to do history at school or whatever without doing um, uh, without doing 
doing 20th century history. It's nearly all 20th century history, but not not in my day. Um, so uh, I was playing cricket actually, and um, a Spitfire suddenly kind of started pirouetting over mid wicket, and um, <laughs> that was, that was my Damascene moment. So that's how I got into it. In terms of difference, well, you know, the the problem is is that my brother's sources are completely finite. Albeit, you know, from an archaeological point of view, you know, there are still new new discoveries being made. But but in terms of sort of, you know, hard sources, it's pretty finite. Whereas I think with the Second World War, it just isn't. I mean, it's just such a massive subject. There's so much, you know, I've done nearly, I've done over 700 episodes of, of We Have Ways of Making You Talk, and there's still absolutely tons that we haven't haven't done. And I, I recently found a, a list of named battles involving British army just the british army not the RAF, not not the royal navy in in the second world war and it was like 1127 <laughs> and i think we've done about 12 of them so you know it's kind of it's it's a endlessly um fascinating subject uh and i'm sure we'll get onto this but but it's also one where the tentacles kind of absolutely still are being felt i suppose you could well, say that about ancient rome as well to a certain extent but not not in quite the same way and you know, the challenge for me is, you know, the challenge for my brother is trying to find all the sources, whereas the challenge for me is trying to work out what to leave out. <laughs> well, you mentioned that the tentacles of that conflict are still being felt. Let's get into it. For anyone who actually who has found this episode belatedly, we are chatting less than a week after Hamas entered Israel and launched a series of brutal terrorist attacks. Israel are now in what are almost certainly the earlier stages of a response in the Gaza Strip. This is an almost unfairly broad question of itself, but can you help try and put a historical context around what we're seeing now? Yeah, well, uh, during the, um, the Russian Civil War, there were kind of huge pogroms and anti-Semitism and lots of Jews started fleeing, particularly from Ukraine, incidentally, uh, and moving to Palestine, which was sort of a man- a British mandate, which is a kind of sort of um, a euphemism for saying it's part of the British Empire. It wasn't strictly speaking. Um, it's a bit like Egypt being um, a protectorate, <laughs> which is another euphemism for saying that we can do whatever we like there. So, so basically it was under sort of British control. Um, and, and more and more Jews started moving into into Palestine, which of course is you know the ancient uh, the ancient kingdom of the Jews, Judea before the Romans came there and, uh, and conquered the area um, and turned it into Palestine. That's where the, the, the name comes from; is a Roman name. Uh, and of course, before Judea had been been the ancient kingdom of Israel um, in the Old Testament and everything. Um, so the Jews went back there, and there was sort of uh, growing tensions. Uh, leading up to the Second World War, because of the number of Jews now rubbing shoulders with with uh, with with Arabs and uh, Muslims in in the Palestine area and Transjordan area, and there was an Arab revolt against the British and against this influx of Jews um, just before the Second World War, uh, which was put down pretty pretty quickly, but but still sort of festering away. And actually, um, a regiment that I've done a lot of work on was the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, who were sent out to Palestine in January 1940 with their horses. And their first action was a sabres-drawn charge against Arab insurrectionists. So there mm. you go. I mean, you know, right mm. in the middle of the Second World War, and you kind of seize to forget that, that once hostilities opened, it wasn't just all kind of, you know, fighting fighting against Germany and Italy and what have you, and the Axis. There were other kind of um, empire, poli- colonial police police duties still being done. After the war, kind of, you know, Britain was obviously um, uh, much denuded by... Um, Financially, by the by, the Second World War was basically trying to sort of get rid of the empire. And although it still had a kind of stake in Palestine, it was sort of getting out of Palestine. And there was a declaration that that um, and, and a suggestion by the United Nations that that there should be that the, the old area of Palestine should be split into an area that was 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 Jewish and an area which was was Arab. 
and that led to the Arab-Israeli War. And the armistice was signed in 1949 between is the, the the new state of Israel and Egypt, Lebanon, and Jordan and Syria. And this established what we now know as the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, um, and the rest of it as as Israel, the kingdom of, or, or rather the state of Israel, not kingdom anymore, but the state of Israel. And you know, it's it, it was a fudge, and it was um, and, and it was a, a and it was a, a compromise that, that didn't really. You know, I mean, it's just, it's never really been solved. It's never really been sorted. And, um, you know, there's been subsequent wars and Israel's always come out on top. So it's still there. But the latent, you know, the, the kind of festering problems and, and uh, of, of cramming too many people into the Gaza Strip, obviously, you know, when you've, when you've got a people that feel like they're, they're, they're basically being chat on there's going to be trouble uh, and out of that comes groups like Hamas now I think it's very important that you you don't tar all Palestinians with the same brush because the vast majority of Palestinians are peace loving just want to get on with their lives uh, uh, and Hamas are deeply murderous as of that, that there is absolutely no question I mean you know Britain and the United States label them as a, a terrorist organization and you know it's hard to kind of argue against that to be perfectly honest but it's, it's a horrendous situation but but of course you know the, the tentacles of the first world war the two great world wars that took place in the first half of the 20th century that's the background to all this how no, much? Because, because it hadn't been the first world war, you wouldn't have had the you wouldn't have had the kind of Russian Revolution. You wouldn't have had the pogroms. You wouldn't have had the Jews moving out in the first place. You wouldn't have then had the you know if you if you if you hadn't had the first world war, you wouldn't have had the Nazis. You wouldn't have then had the the Holocaust. You wouldn't have then had the kind of you know a growing desire. You know, all throughout the war, you know, a lot more and more more Jews were moving to Israel. So so it was it was you know they were just absolutely homing in there, and and you can understand why. You know, it's a, the, the ancient place and um, a, a very historic place, uh, and they feel they have a, a right to that area as much as the arabs do and it, it's a mess you know it just it just is you know it's, it's it's a terrible situation and um it's just absolutely horrendous looking at what's going on at the moment i mean i, I just can't see how this is going to end well how much of what we're seeing now do you see as just an intractable historical problem as old as time itself and how much do you think about and put down to the consequences of the decisions that were made in the immediate aftermath of world war ii well, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm sitting on the fence here, but I do really do think it's a bit of both. I mean, it, you know, it's, 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 you know, one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, leads to another thing. I mean, I mean, you know, the First World War leads to the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution leads to the pogroms. The pogroms lead to the exodus of Jews. Growing anti-Semitism in Europe leads to more um, um, exodus of Jews. Um, Nazi um, uh, anti-Semitic laws introduced from 1933 onwards uh, increase, you know, increase even more exodus. All coming into Israel, into Palestine. That is the ancient. That is the ancient home of of the Jews, and you know you can see they've got a claim. As long as you kind of you accept that something that happened thousands of years earlier has a connection to something thousands of years further on. The end of the second the Second World War causes a massive dislocation, um, huge uh, migrations of people, the biggest migration of people ever that the world has known. It leads to breakup of empires, it leads to breakup of countries, it leads to breakup of borders, and you end up with the Arab-Israeli war, and y- y- you end up with with the Israeli state, and the problem's never really being solved. You know that's that's mm. that's the problem, and of co- of course people could have behaved better. Better decisions could have been made, but ultimately, I think this was a was an issue that that, that was unsolvable. Mm. It was always going to come to a head. And I remember that you know I was talking to someone the other day. He was saying that their father had been involved in 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 the British Exodus from from um, Palestine in forty seven, and um, 
had said this is just never ever going to work and a month of Sundays and you know here we are it's really grim yeah. it's really it's really 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 depressing and you know and it's depressing that they're still fighting over Ukraine I mean Ukraine where there was you know there was at least three million people starved to death in the 1930s at the hands of Stalin. You know, so the kind of the history between Russia and Ukraine, you know, it's, it's got a long form and going mm. you know, obviously much, much earlier than that. You know, parts of Ukraine, Western Ukraine have, you know, um, Lviv as it now is, was Lemberg. It's it switched from being Austrian to Polish to back to Austrian, back to Nazi to Soviet, you know, back to Ukraine, you know, and so it goes on. It's just an absolute melting pot, isn't it? And, um, uh, and and it's amazing how these historical debates and discussions and and and, uh, and dislocations just keep coming back. I mean, you know, things are still bubbling away in the Balkans, aren't they? That's hardly hardly a kind of that's a place to watch as well. So you mm. know, down in Australia, it's all a bit more clear cut. Well, you you say that we've got kind you of say that, very... but then you've got sort of Aboriginal issues and haven't you, and, and and so on, and now the Solomon Islands and what whatnot. So you know, state is always the world has always been in a state of flux, hasn't it? It has. My third question goes to both what we're seeing now in the Middle East, as well as in Russia and Ukraine, but also in World War Two. I've been thinking a lot about just war theory, looking at what's going on in the Middle East at the moment particularly as you see the response of Israel to the initial Hamas attacks. As a World War II historian watching these events, what are your reflections on the distinction between the justifiable and the unjustifiable use of military force? Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? When you look at the levels of destruction on um, uh, on, on Gaza, that doesn't feel like it's, um, uh, um, it's proportionate, does it, really? Compared to, uh, I mean, you know, look at you know all those innocent people that are, are now homeless. I mean, it's 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 just a horror story. But you know, it, they would argue that that it is the Palestinian people that are holding, you know, that are responsible for Hamas, and they could flush them out and, and expose them and get rid of them if they wanted to. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's 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 really difficult, isn't it? I mean, the, the bottom line is, that, you know, you can you can have have ideals about about warfare but what what you discover with warfare is that they don't really get you know the the the, the geneva of convention might be held but what is sort of proportionate that doesn't really happen and and one, as long as there are wars there will be innocents killed and caught up in it i mean that that's just as sure as night follows day you know it really is um yeah i mean the levels of destruction are absolutely hideous and and you, and you see this in ukraine as well don't you and you see it wherever there's war that you know people say they're going to kind of abide by this but they never do i mean look at the the, the ruins of syria for example and you say oh yeah but you know assad's a despot and an autocrat and all the rest of it but but i don't know how much was just war and these types of principles taken into account with truman's decision in 1945 yeah, well, I mean, by, by today's standards, standards, it, you know, it's 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 it, it that's a, that's a really tricky one, isn't it? I mean, you have to under. I think one the background to this is is that the war has been going on a long time. A lot of people are getting killed. There's this sort of mounting frustration by any normal standards of warfare. You know, the Nazi Germany would have surrendered well before it did in in May 1945, and Japan, Imperial Japan, would have surrendered way before it did in. In August 1945, I mean, it was absolutely insane. By 1944, 88% of the economy is being diverted to defence in, 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 in Japan. I mean, you know, Britain spends 2% on defence. You know, so 88%. I mean, that's insane. Absolutely insane. They are beaten. So it's just like throwing the towel. What's the alternative? Well, the, what, what the Americans discover is that the closer they get to the Japanese, they get to Japan home islands, the harder the Japanese fight. 
you know, when you look at Peleliu, you look at the, look at um, the fighting in in even in the Philippines, for that matter, in Manila, kind of slaughter of innocents. The slaughter of innocents in 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 Manila at the hands of the Japanese, for example, and then you look at the, of course, of Iwo Jima, and ultimately then at Okinawa, which was a kind of original Japanese island since since the nineteenth century. But but you know it got tougher and tougher and tougher, and and um, the Allies are uh, intending to invade in the first part of nineteen forty six, and you know they're expecting truly horrific amounts of slaughter. I mean, millions dead is what they're expecting. And they don't want to go through that. They're tired of it, you know, and, and just throw in the towel. And and don't forget that that, that there's not one um, atomic bomb that's dropped on Japan. It's two before, before the Japanese throw in the towel. You know, it's, it's incredible. You know, you'd have thought one would be enough. Frankly, you'd have thought the firebombing of, of, of Tokyo in March 1945 would have been enough. I know, so what's yeah. the alternative to that? What's the alternative to invasion or an atomic bomb? Well, you starve them out. You know, you just you literally just put a um, put a siege around it and stop anything going into Japan, uh, which was actually the the plan of of Admiral Leahy. But you know, potentially way more people could have died as a result of that. But I think there was an acknowledgement that the moment you drop an atomic bomb, you've crossed a line. You know, you've crossed a uh, you know you, you've crossed a Rubicon on which there can be no turning back, and that the world has changed forever. But of course, you know, you can also argue that the deterrence of, of nuclear attack has, has, has held ever since. Now, there are still conventional wars, obviously, and still conventional wars in Europe, whether it be kind of, you know, the Balkans or Ukraine latterly or, you know, what's going on in the Middle East, of course. But, but um, and of course, elsewhere from Africa and, and South America and all sorts of other places, Central America. But certainly in, in Europe, you know, the nuclear deterrent has, has, has unquestionably worked, I'd say. Question four. Wouldn't be a history nerd conversation without a what if. What if Hitler was killed in the beer hall putsch of nineteen twenty three? Yeah, there would. I just don't think there'd have ever been the Nazis. I don't think they'd have, they'd have done it because because they got to power by really really clever manipulation. Uh, and I don't think Goebbels on his own would have would have done it. There was no spokesman who had that kind of oratorial skill that Hitler had. So I think if he had, I think that that would have been toast. I mean, you know, every, everyone who sort of looks at, at the Weimar Republic as being this sort of you know epitome of decadence and you know, drug abuse and people, you know, Salon Kitty and all the rest of it. And, and that's a really, really unfair assessment because before the Wall Street crash, actually Weimar was doing really quite well, you know, and they were doing they were doing exactly what West Germany did post Second World War, which was building themselves up as a as a as an a, a, a nation of manufacturing and, and engineering brilliance and scientific brilliance. And it was actually going quite well. I mean, the wheelbarrows of money were a long time in the past, uh, and and they were getting themselves back on a pretty even keel. What changed everything was the Wall Street crash of um, of 1929, which uh, meant that kind of you know, I mean, that, that the, the the support from the United States that was propping them up, you know, that that went, and they went down the barrel again. And then there was a kind of a, a host of wrong turns made by German politicians. Um, that led to Hitler taking power as a fudge in January 1933. You know, they thought they could manipulate him. They were putting him in to kind of, you know, so that they could, the puppet that they would be on the strings. And of course, it was the other way around. We just didn't realize it. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, to, to look at how, how for example, how um, Hitler used the law courts and, and failed law cases to increase his popularity. I mean, look, he's doing that now. I mean, mm. it's, 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 it's absolutely amazing. And, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but patterns of human behaviors only do. You said there wouldn't be a Nazis without Hitler, but obviously there were still these undercurrents in Europe, starting with the Versailles Treaty, a lot of cultural resentments within Germany. Would there still have been some sort of large-scale 
conflict in continental Europe, a World War II without Hitler and the Nazis? I don't know. I, I, I suspect not. I, I think it's I, I think there was there's lots of political upheaval, there's no question about it, and and, and, and politics was, was very, very disjointed, as it has been since two thousand and eight, incidentally. I think it's more that, that you you know, the way history the the way the days um roll out is it's a series of, of forks in the road and it and it depends on which fork you take. And ultimately that's down to individuals and, and whether they say the say the words that spark that kind of people to take that particular fork. I mean, you know, if you didn't have Trump, you wouldn't have this. You might still have a huge split in America, but you wouldn't have the kind of politics that that, that Trump has brought. You know, so so I think I think you know it, it is. It's not like everything's inevitable at all. I think I think individuals really really do play play a massive part. And this is really interesting because that almost nods at the great man theory of history, which gets poo-pooed by a lot of historians these days. Do, do you still think it holds some weight? Yeah, well, I, you know, yeah, but I'm, I'm reluctant to kind of sort of tar Hitler and Trump as great man status. I think, I think sort of significant people who are of their moment that somehow have it within them to kind of strike a chord and, and articulate things that people, that, 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 are, that an undercurrent of people want to, want to hear. But I don't think everyone has that. Everyone has that. You know, not, not everyone has that kind of that moment in time where they're sufficiently different and iconoclastic and, and oratorily um, proficient to be able to pull that off. That's where things are, are not guaranteed. I mean, there, there was just no one in the, in, the, in the Nazi party that could have, other than Hitler, that could have taken them to where they were on, in 1933, beginning of 1933. Just, just no one. There's, there's, there's no one with the combination of, of, of oratory, vision, um, charisma to do that. I mean, I don't know if you've looked at the kind of the other Nazis are around him at that time. I mean, they're a pretty sorry bunch. I mean, Goering maybe, but it, but, but he was too self indulgent and, and too, too narcissistic. He didn't, you know, his ideology was, was, was lukewarm. For him, it was all about the power and the money and the wealth and the kind of, you know, the sort of anti-Semitism and, and, and all the rest. Of it. They were kind of, sort of you know, he wasn't. Particularly anti- I mean, he, he was anti-Semitic, but but not not virulently so. It wasn't absolute cornerstone of of what he was thinking. He doesn't doesn't think that you know Lebensraum is the answer to everything. He's just a you know he's a chancer really. Goebbels is absolutely ideological, but he doesn't have that. He has charisma, but he doesn't have leadership charisma. Nor does you know Hess or any of these other people or Rosenberg or any of them. They you know they just don't have it. And and there's no character like Trump who who who, who combines that sort of brash unspeakable narcissism and, and self-interest and just ability to just lie all the time and what he's realized is that you can say whatever you like he can say whatever he like and he's untouchable because he can just say i mean he was saying the other day wasn't he that that that, that, that you know when we win in, in 20 uh, you know in 2024 obviously everyone will say that we haven't you know so he's already planting that and it hasn't even happened i mean that that's just terrible Question five, and I'm leading the witness a tad because I've heard you riff on this before. From the moment that Germany invaded Poland, was their eventual defeat inevitable? Uh, no, I don't think it was. I think it was eventual defeat was inevitable the moment they went into the Soviet Union, I think. So if people um, don't know, that, when I, was I that? I think so. So that was in the third week of June 1941. I mean, you know, the problem that Germany has is that it is not entirely landlocked, but almost landlocked. You know, it's got a little bit of the Baltic Sea, which is a sort of 
mess of narrow channels and islands. Then he's got a little stretch of the of the of the North Sea. But but the Royal Navy at the time is the world's largest and the best. And it can you know at the moment they go into Poland, the Germans go into Poland. Britain imposes an economic blockade, so it just can't get stuff. Its only source of real oil is from from Romania. In the mm. whole war, I mean, in 1944, Britain's domestic use is 22 and a half million gallons of 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 fuel every in that year. Germany's entire use of fuel is four and a half million gallons. So, you know, it's just not competing and it, and it's running out of stuff. And the whole way that Germany has always fought its war is short, sharp wars that that could be won in very quick order because they don't have the natural resources to sustain a long war. And it's what they've always done. It's what they do in 1914. Um, it's just it doesn't work. It starts to work and then it doesn't. And so they get blogged down in a, in a long kind of attritional war that they can't win and they don't. You know, it's the same in 1939, 1940. You know, they have the Blitzkrieg age where they kind of smash into Poland and then go into Scandinavia and then go go into the Low Countries and France and beat France in, in six weeks. And it all looks all very peachy. But they don't knock out Britain. And Britain has no intention of being knocked out. And nor do the rest of the uh, of the Duke forces, you know, the Dominions, UK and, and, and Empire. And um, so it's got a problem on its hand. So where is it going to get its horses? Because, you know, within a matter of months, the, the, the cupboard is bare on all these places that they've already pilfered from i mean you know france is bad so france france is a, has the most number of vehicles of any country in europe in 1939 and by the end of 1940 there are 92% less vehicles in france than there were on the 1st of january 1940 that's because the germans have half inched them all you know they've nicked the whole lot and so then but- then france which is this sort of leading manufacturing state can't function because the germans have nicked everything so it can no longer manufacture effectively because the workers can't get to work. There isn't enough coal because the Germans have nicked it all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just in a spiral. I mean, what one has to understand about Nazi Germany is that basically it's a fantasy world. Um, it's a fantasy world of the Nazi leading Nazis making. Uh, and it's built on the absolute flimsiest foundations for all the kind of, you know, Nuremberg rallies and, you know, frog marching and sea of automaton SS types and all the rest of it and tanks, et cetera, et cetera, and Stuka dive bombers. The whole thing is really, really flimsy. And the moment it extends too long without being replenished, they can't function properly. And that, that's what happens. And you know, that's what happens in, in, in the Soviet Union. I mean, it, it's absolutely game over when Barbarossa doesn't work. I mean, just, there is no way back. And, if, and, and to kind of prove the point, really, I mean, you know, think about this. Middle of June 1941, Germany's got one enemy, which is sort of Great Britain and Great Britain's Empire and Dominions. By the middle of December, six months later, it's got three. It's got... Britain and Empire and Dominions. It's got the USSR and it's got the United States. Mm. I mean, with that, with that absolutely un- unparalleled access to manpower and resources, Germany isn't going to win. It's not just, it's just no. never going to happen in a million years. No, that makes sense. And, and as an aside, to anyone listening, strongly recommend the We Have Ways episodes on Barbarossa, which are ah. fascinating, and just go yeah, to the yeah. the bizarre. Calamitous thinking that underpinned that. that oh, it's just unbelievable! Unbelievable! The hubristic approach. You know, they sort of. You know, they do all these. What you know, they do all these plans for it, and and you know, they say, well, you know, this isn't actually going to go quite as well as everyone thinks, and this is our culmination point. The culmination point being the point at which you extend your 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 supply lines are so far that you can no longer operate in the way that you want to operate, and. um you know the the planners look at it, you know Hitler looks at it and goes goes no that won't do at all and they go okay well we'll change it then <laughs> they sort of change it so it's more optimistic I mean it's just 
bonkers, absolutely bonkers. And you, uh, you know, and this is this is one of the things that sort of gives me some kind of source of comfort when I kind of think about the world's autocrats. Is that what autocrats live live in a fantasy world? They they just do. They live in a world of deep suspicion, paranoia. Um, you know, that's deep suspicion and paranoia. Not good. It's not a good um, condition by which to make sound and rational judgments. Uh, but also, the people around them are then encouraged to tell them what they want to hear rather than the reality. So you're then making decisions based on unreality rather than reality, which again is is it doesn't really kind of augur well. So you know that gives me hope for someone like Putin, and to a certain extent, President Xi or Chairman Xi as well. But I mean, yeah, who knows? But yeah, it's um it's scary stuff. Question six. For many years after World War II, Churchill's reputation was simple and relatively universal. Saviour of Britain, later, greatest Britain of the 20th century. The rise of identity politics and some other cultural forces of more the more recent times has complicated this picture somewhat. How do you reflect on Churchill's legacy? Oh, I mean, he's still one of the great greatest Britons ever to have lived. And, you know, the fact that we were able to have these discussions uh, and argue the toss and accuse him of racism and and um, uh, and, and even think about cancelling him is, is largely down to him um, helping us win the war in 1945. Good answer. <laughs> you won't find any arguments from me. Uh, and... Uh... And what an interesting line is, I really like that as well. The fact we can have these conversations is a byproduct of the success and the, the character of the man. It's uh, that's yeah. a lovely way of putting it. Yep. Question seven. What is the greatest myth associated with World War Two? Oh, I think I think the sort of brilliance of the German military. I think it's just it, it it needs to be knocked into touch. You know, if they were so brilliant, why do they lose? I mean, it's 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 absolutely nonsense. I mean, what one? Ha- I think I think this all goes back to the Blitzkrieg years, and and it's the um. It's it's this sort of putting them on a pedestal from France 1940 and you know winning in six weeks and all that kind of stuff and the kind of way they seem appeared to kind of effortlessly sweep into Poland and and to Scandinavia. But you would agree uh, they were br- were they were brilliant military tactics. The spearhead, yeah, spearhead was, and and the organisation, the operational skill was 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 exemplary, absolutely. But 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 even then, only about. Thirty percent of the, the troops that were employed were actually kind of fully trained. So this idea that you can tar them all with one brush and they're all, you know, they have this huge sort of tactical advantage over everybody else. You know, the 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 the, the kind of the brilliance of the Tiger Tank, the brilliance of their of, of of the speed of which they can make turn themselves into Kampfgruppen. You know, these sort of bat, all arms battle groups. I mean, what one has to understand is that a Kampfgruppen, a battle group, is fundamentally a sign of weakness. The fact that you can you can cobble together troops very quickly means you haven't got very many of them. Because if you had a lot, it would take a lot longer to put, organize. You know, when you've got offshore naval guns and you've got huge amounts of artillery and you've got um, um, close air support as well, that's quite a lot to organize. You can't just click your fingers and it all happens in five minutes. So that's why it takes, it seems that the Allies quite often are a bit more ponderous. But, 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 you know, there are many, many examples where you find Soviet troops or or allied troops taking on German troops on a kind of sort of, you know, numerical parity and they win. And that tells mm. you that the Germans aren't as good as they're meant to be. And also, you know, it, it, they change. I mean, so the cream of the German army, which are very, very good in 1940 are largely gone by the end of 1941 because they've been destroyed in you know, endless conflicts and, and not least in the Soviet Union. So the, the 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 German army of the of, of the second half of the war is is very well disciplined and still has some half decent kit, but the idea that they're all superbly well trained is just absolutely nonsense. And what you do find is that you find the original officer class that you have in the first half of the first second world war, which is 
pre-war, properly trained, vetted, you know, incredibly tough and difficult to become an officer. That's all gone by the second half of the war because A, there isn't the time to train them properly, but B, they're replacing them with good Nazis rather than with sound soldiers. So they're very good at keeping troops in the front line and shooting them if they desert. But but that doesn't mean to say that they're military geniuses or, or, or tactical, tactically brilliant or anything. It just means that they're very good at being disciplined and doing what they're told. And that's not the same thing at all. I mean, anyone can fire a machine gun at something. Following up from that line, though, being disciplined, doing what they're told, how much of the failures of the German military do you put down to the Messiah complex and the continuous meddling of Hitler in military oh, affairs? A, a huge amount. It would unquestionably be in a hell of a lot. I mean, you know, in the Soviet Union, they'd been far better off just taking Ukraine uh, and, and, and stopping at the Dnieper, for example, and Smolensk and having that. And that's it. That's the new border. I mean, you know, Russia would have had, wouldn't have been able to answer that in any time soon. You know, it's, it's, it's overextension. It's, it's overambition. But why, why are they going further? Because they want to get the oil fields of, of, of the Caucasus. But, but you know, when they get there, they haven't got enough. Even if they do get there, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be able to transport that oil because they haven't got any means of transporting it. There's no oil pipelines. There's no, they haven't got any ships, which is how oil goes around the world today. And and the Reichsbahn, the railway system, is absolutely capacity already. So, you know, the idea that they can that's going to transform their fortunes is, is ridiculous. So So just stop. You know, there's plenty of resources in, in Ukraine and the Baltic and everything and, and come to a settled peace. You know, if you hadn't got Hitler and you hadn't got the ideology, that, that all of that could have been possible. The, the, the problem is, is that everything that, the, that happens to Germany in the Second World War is laced with a, with, a, with a Nazi and Hitlerian ideology, which is grotesque. And that takes it to a different level. It's, it's, it's not like a conventional war. Question eight. Tell me your favourite World War II story. Well, my favourite World War II story always sort of depends on what I'm doing at any one time. But but one of my favourite World War II stories is, was told to me by Roland Beaumont. Uh, B. Beaumont, he was an amazing guy, and uh, he joined the RAF before the war, so he's flying in biplanes and stuff. Then was flying Hurricanes with, I think, uh, was it 80, 85 or 87 Squadron, I can't remember, in, in northern France. Then was back in England for the Battle of Britain and, and all the rest of it. And in, in 1941, he had a girlfriend, and um, he was very fond of this girlfriend. And the girlfriend had invited to some party. And um, he had forgotten all about it. And so she rang up that morning and said, so how are we going to get to the party this morning? And he was thinking, oh, Christ, oh, <laughs> bollocks, what am I going to do? So he said, oh, don't worry about it. Just just, just get, get yourself here for six o'clock and um, uh, I'll surprise you. And he got off the phone and thought, you know, what am I going to do? And then he suddenly thought, I'll take her in the hurricane. So he primed his fitter and his rigger, which is his ground crew. I said, look, don't tell anyone, but I'm going to take my girlfriend, so I won't go out of the parachute, and I'll sit on her lap, and we'll get that way. So I know his girlfriend turns up at six o'clock, and she goes, "So, where's you know, how are we going to get there?" And he goes, "Da da!" And sort of points to the hurricane. She goes, "You have got to be joking." He goes, "No, come on, you wouldn't you love to go up in a hurricane?" She goes, "Well, yeah, I suppose I would." So they fly off the party and have the party, and then take off again afterwards and fly back. Uh, but unfortunately, the station commander spots him and spots her getting out, so he gets court-martialed, and um. Anyway, basically, he's just told off. You know, it's a terrible disgrace. You know how often, it, how much it costs to kind of train someone up, and you know, it, it's a, this is an absolutely dereliction of your duty and an appalling waste of, of you know high risk. And you know, you've got to be more responsible. Anyway, don't do it again. And then he then he passes over um, <laughs> an envelope and he goes, right, you can open that now. And um, it's an award of a, DFC, a second DFC and, and his promotion to, to wing commander. <laughs> <laughs> a few of the old boys are quietly just going, well, well played, young fella. 
really. It's, oh, it's just I, I love that because you know, obviously, we live in a world of kind of sort of incredible uh, um, nanny stateness now, don't we? And you know, and I know a lot of it's justified, but but a lot of it you kind of think really, um, you know, if I'm sort of watching over your shoulder every two minutes and you can't do this and you can't do that, and you know, it just reminds you of a time where um, you know, obviously, no one would want to live in their right mind would want to live through the Second World War, but 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 a time where there was a sort of maybe a slightly greater proportionality about about things. Yeah, absolutely. And also, isn't just those, those stories so wonderfully poignant given that you know the horror that's happening around that just wonderful moment of cheekiness and, and humanity? Yeah. It just makes it more powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I said, so what happened to your girlfriend? He said, oh, I did marry her. <laughs> 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 that's fantastic yeah 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 this is great question nine uh, your most recent book is on the first months of the Italian campaign in 1943 why'd you write it and perhaps give listeners the broad brush strokes of that campaign and why it matters yeah sure so so yeah so I, I'm I'm um Ages ago, I wrote a book about the kind of last last year of the war in Italy because no one had ever done it. And then a couple of years back, I did um, a book on Sicily. So I thought, well, the bit I haven't ever written about is actually is from the invasion of Italy right through to the kind of fall of Rome. So um, I, I thought I'd do that, and, and I was going to call it Casino Forty Four, and it was, but you know, Casino was going to be the kind of the, the main main bit of it because that was the most significant. You know, it's the, it's the most remembered, it's the most attritional, it's the most brutal battle, I suppose, of of the, of the Italian campaign. And um, but anyway, I started I started writing this book, and 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 I was really getting into it because I sort of after I wrote, I wrote a book about the Sherwood Rangers that I mentioned earlier on, mm-hmm. um, and one of the things that I really enjoyed about that, and I found really particularly moving, was that I was using a lot of letters and diaries, so, so it was kind of absolutely in the moment, you know. And I was really struck when I was reading these letters, particularly. Some of the more detailed ones, uh, you know, these guys don't know when the war's going to end. They don't know whether they're going to survive. You, as the reader, don't know whether they're going to survive because, obviously, if you're talking to someone six years after the event, then self-evidently they survive because they're talking to you. So that kind of takes away some of the kind of reading jeopardy, I suppose. So I was, re- I, but but really, it was this kind of absolutely being in the moment, this kind of sort of no forward projection, seeing it as it was at that time, and I felt that that gave me a much sort of stronger feeling for what it had been like at that moment um, on on any given day. So I tried it with with the Italy book. I deliberately tried to. Um, kind of focus on that and use contemporary sources as much as I possibly can. And I did, you know, I think, you know, 80% of it is drawn from from contemporary sources. And um, and fascinating it's been too, because uh, for all those reasons, you, you know, you, you see you see people, what they're thinking on that particular day in October or November or September or whenever it might be. But the other thing is, but by, by doing all that, I also completely realised, I just realised that people just don't really know about that part of the Italian campaign. Um, you know, no one really knows about crossing the. There's been a little bit about the landings at Salerno, maybe, but no one knows about the kind of capture of the Foggia airfields, and no one knows about the Battle of Termoli or or crossing the Sangro, or particularly the Battle for Ortona, which was absolutely awful, known at the time as the sort of Stalingrad of the Adriatic. I mean, it's a horrible kind of you know meat grinder of a battle, and they don't know much about San Pietro and crossing the Volturno and all these kind of things, and Monte Samucro and Camino and hitting the Bernhard Line or the Winter Line, as also known. And so I thought, actually, you know, I'm going to split this into two i'm going to do two books i'm going to do one that just focuses just on 1943 and this kind of spiral of kind of awfulness and violence and and um and brutality and and how that came to be you know what the hell are they doing in casino by the beginning of 1944 why are they there and and usually in books this is really skirted over and i just felt that all the people that have fought there deserved a better kind of a better showing they deserved to kind of have their story told uh, but also that it was a 
utterly fascinating story. So, so that's why I wrote the book. And and um, you know, it's a it's a grim old tale, but it but it's sort of grimly fascinating. I mean, it really, really is interesting. And it, and it's interesting because it also you know from a from a um, from a topographical point of view, from from a, from a, um, a seasonal point of view, you know, it starts off under the sort of broiling sun of kind of early September 1943, and by the end of December 1943, it, it's kind of you know it's short days, it's dark, it's sort of windy, it's raining all the time. If it's not raining, it's freezing cold with snow and hail. You know, it goes so, so it goes from sort of one extreme to the other. And you've got this incredible backdrop, which is you know Italy itself, of all these sort of mountains and rivers and settlements and towns and villages and what have you. And you've got this sort of huge civilian population. So you know, you put all that together, and um, it's it's a I I found it an incredibly compelling story. And this is what smacked me in the face reading the book is a lot of the time I think with military history you can just fall into the abstract and think about yeah, it yeah. as you know a series of tactics into a grand strategy yeah. and forget how bloody awful and brutal war is and I think that approach right. that you took of, of focusing on primary sources really does humanize it and and gives the reader a feeling of the realities of war in a way I actually hadn't had an experience before. Oh great! Well, I'm thrilled to hear it. I mean, that's exactly the aim. So um, I'm I'm thrilled to hit the spot for you. Will I, I mean? I, I get really annoyed by if, if people refer to me as a military historian. I get or I, I suddenly come over all prickly. Um, <laughs> I don't really think I'm. I, I think a military historian is someone who does that kind of abstract stuff. It's sort of you know, thirteen brigade moved up and they kind of crossed the river and at oh six four five and all that kind of crap. Uh, um, whereas I feel I'm a I'm a war historian because I think w- warfare is is partly about military, but it's also economic, political, social history as well. Uh, you know, what about the poor old Italians caught up in the middle of this? I mean, you know, the problem is, is Italy is very mountainous. Um, it's got a population of 40 million, which is a lot. And, and of course, most of those 40 million are in exactly the areas where the Allies are trying to trying to move forward and the Germans are trying to retreat. So mm. you've got a kind of perfect storm where they're all kind of sort of screwed up together. I mean, I, I kind of sort of liken the the, the, uh, the campaign a bit like a sort of a twister. You know, you've seen those sort of pictures, how many of them sort of going over the Midwest of America or something. And it's just sort of causing this absolute mayhem everywhere it goes. It's just ripping everything up. And I kind of see that 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 sort of storm of steel, kind of what, it's, what, it, what it was like in Italy, really. You know, and I... And I uh, you know, all those towns and villages which are just destroyed. I mean, you know, even if you go down to the kind of Salerno area now, you look at sort of Battapalia or Alta Villa or these kind of towns. I mean, they're gopping. I mean, absolutely mm. gopping. That's because they all got completely destroyed then have really bad, bad 1950s and 60s architecture on, on them. And they're still mm. horrid, you know. And they, they, you know, and, and it's those scars are still there. You look at, you know, you can go to San Pietro, which is only kind of eight miles or so south of Casino. Uh, which in turn is kind of you know seventy five miles south of Rome, uh, and it's still in ruins. I mean, it's it's it was abandoned. They never lived in it again. You know, the whole village is there with sort of ivy growing all over it and trees and, and what have you. And you can you can peer into someone's kitchen, and the paint is still peeling from the wall, and you can see the old sink and all this sort of stuff, and the sort of the the, the patterned tiles on the floor, you know, still seeing through the leaves and the dirt and just about, and it's incredibly moving. It really is profoundly moving because you think, Jesus, you know, this is, this is, this is one of those legacies. You know, I mean, it's mm. just, and also, you know, someone like San Pietro, you know, these these places, these places in Italy were, were seriously parochial. So it might have been kind of ninety nine point one percent Catholic or something as a country, but but they had more regional patois in Italy than any other country in the whole of Europe. If not the world, for all I know, but but certainly in Europe, and and that tells you that there's lots of very isolated communities, and you know even when you go to some of these places today, you think Jesus, this is off the 
off the beaten track. You know, it's like mm-hmm. going to going to some sort of village in the bush on the outback of Australia. I mean, you know, these 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 communities live in their own little bubble, don't they? You know, they, they might they might sort of abide by kind of rules and laws that are kind of created in Canberra. What the heck? I mean, you know, they're their own little community, their own little bubble. They're sort of cut off from a lot of the kind of modern world, even even today. Well, you know, imagine what that's like in Italy, and imagine what that's like in the 1940s. I mean, these guys are seriously provincial, and someone like San Pietro is just untouched. I mean, you know, the, the rhythms and seasons of life have just been going on for centuries, largely untouched. You know. You know, son to father to grandfather to great father, great grandfather to great great grandfather. They've all farmed the same bit of land. They've all lived in the same house. You know, the, it's it's all exactly the same. And 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 then suddenly, in a kind of you know matter of a couple of weeks, in December nineteen forty three, all of that is destroyed. And and that's it's it's you know only the hardest hard would 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 not be kind of moved by that. We're just about at time, but if you'll indulge me, my my tenth and final question. She bet. Sometimes I think we feel we're more evolved than the people that have come before us and then we're, we're better, we're more progressed, we're more sophisticated. And yet we are, as we've talked about, seeing echoes of some of the, the conflicts of the past in, in today. What are the lesson or, or the, the, the major lessons for you when you think about World War II that society should keep in mind today? Well, I, I, I remember the Balkan Wars erupting in the 1990s and just being horrified. I just couldn't believe it that here we were in the kind of, you know, the end of the 20th century and when people were behaving in the same way that they were, you know, let me just think about some massacres of Srebrenica and, uh, and so on. You just, 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 it's unbelievable. I think already we've become sort of completely inured to that. I mean, you know, the, the, the scale of the, of the horror, the kind of sort of casual beheadings and stuff in the Middle East and, and, uh, and so on. It's, it's, um, it's so shocking and yet it's, it's become sort of, Part and parcel, isn't it? We're definitely becoming a much more violent world again, and I think that's really, really troubling. You know, the the Second World War really should be enough to kind of stop anyone ever going to war again. And and the tragedy is that 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 hasn't proved the case. You know, I, I, I I'm 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 reeling a bit from from what's happened in the last couple of years. I really really am. I I just can't believe what's going on in Ukraine. I can't believe what's going on in the Middle East at the moment. It's 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 absolutely horrific. But but all the lessons are there in the Second World War. You know, warped ideology, power of autocrats, misguided aims and hopes, terrors of extreme nationalism, the violence of of conventional conflict. There it all is. I mean, you know, and 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 it's and it's terrifying that you're seeing scenes of streets destroyed and burnt out tanks and blackened corpses, just like you were in you know in the Second World War. Well, it makes it more important than ever that we engage with history we understand history right. and we we learn from history uh that's a not so subtle segue james thank you so much for your time the savage storm is out in australia now couldn't uh recommend it more highly to everyone who is listening also as an aside strongly suggest everyone goes out and follows we have ways of making you talk with our murray which is just a fantastic podcast thank you for coming on australiana oh thanks for having me will good to see you Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.